This episode is brought to you by CrunchFirm, a full-stack finance, accounting, and CFO advisory partner focused exclusively on VC-backed startups. CrunchFirm steps in as a hands-on CFO for their clients and serves as a one-stop shop, taking on bookkeeping, back office, tax, cap table management, financial modeling, and fundraising support. If you are a founder or know a founder of a fast-growing startup looking for a best-in-class partner for these crucial services, get in touch with the team at CrunchFirm by emailing hello at crunchfirm.com. Listeners also get the first month free. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past the future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to theconsumervc.com slash startup. Our guest today is Dan Gluck, managing partner of Power Plant Ventures, a growth equity fund investing in emerging consumer brand, beverage, and food service companies leading disruptive plant-centric brands. Some of their investments include Beyond Meat, Thrive Market, and Veggie Grill. Previously, Dan co-founded Health Warrior, which was acquired by PepsiCo in 2018. This was a fantastic conversation. Dan discusses what attracted him to investing at a young age, his insight that led him to founding Health Warrior, and why he's so focused on better for you and plant-based food. Without further ado, here's Dan. Dan, thank you so much for being here and uh, excited to do this. How are you? I'm doing well, Mike. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. So let's talk about the beginning. What attracted you initially to finance and investing in specifically in health and wellness products? Uh, well, it really, I guess I should say my interest in health and wellness dates back to, you know, be, being a kid, always been someone who's really interested in sports. I was a competitive tennis player growing up. I played division one tennis in college and then went on to become a competitive triathlete and uh, done several Ironmans and marathons, ultra marathons, uh, adventure races for my, for my 40th birthday uh, just not too long ago. I did a 24-hour Spartan race in Iceland to celebrate my youth. So health and wellness has always been important. And as an athlete, I also at an early age grew up knowing the importance of food and diet. So not only was I someone who was just, you know, very fit and always looking to exercise, but uh, diet was an important component of my fitness regimen. I was fortunate to have parents that were very healthy. I had some coaches who were very influential. One of my tennis coaches was a raw vegan. Uh, so very, very early on I, in high school, I was learning about raw vegan diets, when, which you know, I grew up in the 80s and in kind of a blue collarish type town that wasn't really popular. I was doing sun salutations on the tennis court in high school. Again, not very popular, but it really you know stuck with me. But uh, I also had a real interest in finance. Uh, something about the stock markets in particular always fascinated me. I remember again in junior high school and high school looking at all my dad's you know investments and going through his portfolio looking at circling all the stocks in the newspapers and so I was just very fascinated with finance and the markets in particular and so when I graduated college I decided to go into finance and follow that that passion and so I found myself in uh, financial consulting right out of school 
But then pretty quickly within a year, I transitioned into the investment management industry. And uh, that's when I actually transitioned while I'm working in private equity and venture. Now, I started my career in the public markets, working on the hedge fund side of the business. And so for 15 years, I was a partner and a portfolio manager at a very large hedge fund, investing in more mature public companies. So it's very different from what I'm doing today. And it was not focused on health and wellness. But we can talk a little about sort of that transition into how I blended the two and found that intersection. Yeah, no, I would love to. And first of all, you're crazy on your 40th birthday that you did that 24-hour Spartan. I've done one Spartan race, but uh, I think it lasts like me like an hour or something. <laughs> Certainly wasn't anything compared to that. So that's uh, that's pretty, pretty epic. So talk to you a little bit about, about the transition, I guess, leading to my next question talking a little bit about the transition that you went from public markets to blending your interests in health and wellness. So while I was managing my hedge fund, I was still very competitive as, as a triathlete. In fact, I was training for an Ironman when I discovered chia seeds, which as healthy of a consumer as I was, I had never been aware of chia seeds other than the infamous chia pet, which is what most consumers knew chia seeds for. I discovered them after reading a book called Born to Run. Amazing book. It's a New York Times bestseller, Christopher McDougall. He's an amazing author. And it really is because of him that I found myself entering the world of entrepreneurism. Because in the book, he talks all about this group called the Tarahumara, who, who are these um, this tribe that lives in the Copper Mountains of Mexico. And they're known as these incredible endurance runners. Their whole society actually revolves around running. And where they live in the Copper Mountains, in order to access anything, they pretty much need to go on these amazing long journeys and these runs. And Christopher McDougall, the author, discovered them uh, because they were entering, entering a lot of sanctioned ultramarathon races and winning. And they were showing up wearing nothing but robes and es essentially like flip-flops. So he decided to go do a study on them. And long story short, what was interesting is that in the book, what came out was this whole concept of barefoot running, which became a huge trend, the vibram five fingers. You see people walking around in those silly shoes. But what I took away from it was the fact that they mentioned several times they referenced the health benefits and nutritional benefits of chia seeds. And so as an athlete, I was naturally intrigued. And that ultimately led me to starting my own company with two of my friends that uh, focusing on bringing chia seeds to, to the U.S. As we started doing a lot of research, we really learned about all the nutritional properties of chia that they were packed with omega-3s, antioxidants, high in plant-based protein. Then they also had this incredible history dating all the way back to the Aztecs. In fact, if you go do a Google search, Aztec warrior chia seeds, there's all these pictures of Aztec warriors going out to battle with a little pouch. And in that pouch, they carried chia seeds. And they would just bring chia seeds and water with them. When a lot of Aztec warriors were buried, they were actually buried and sprinkled with chia seeds on them. Chia in one form uh, in history was actually used as a form of currency back in the Aztecs civilization. So they had this like amazing Indiana Jones-like story. And, uh, you know, we thought that we could bring them to market. I, I was fortunate that I was a uh, early seed investor in what is, and we'll come back to this, what is now my, my current business partner at Power Plant Ventures, Mark Rampola's company, Zico Coconut Water. I sort of watched what he had done with coconut water, where he took a genuinely nutritious food product or beverage in this case, that was indigenous to another part of the world and brought it to the US in a convenient format, branded it appropriately, and you know had explosive growth. And I thought that we could do the same thing with chia seeds. And so that's that was how Health Warrior was born. And so uh, I was actually never the, the, the CEO. I maintained sort of my job uh, and uh, of running my hedge fund, as did one of my other co-founders. But our third partner, Shane Emmett, who was my college roommate, 
he became the CEO and he ran it full time, but we spoke almost every day. I was very involved in, particularly in the early formation of the business, everything from obviously ideation to product formulation to branding, sitting there with, you know, with marketers coming up with names for the company and hiring our first few employees. So very instrumental in the early development of building this business and really understanding of, you know, how to take advantage of an opportunity when you see it. And then ultimately really trying to sort of, you know, not only identifying the opportunity, but architecting that breakthrough brand and what it takes. And it's, it's hard. <laughs> that, that's for sure. No, absolutely. First of all, it's funny. I, I actually saw Mark, he did a presentation back when I was in grad school at USC, I think a couple of years ago. So I've, I've, I've seen him speak about his early days at Zico and starting that, which was pretty amazing. He really went through all the details of the ups and downs over, over that. So that was pretty awesome to hear. But was there any like crossover? Because of course, you're going from like public market investing. Of course, you have this interest in health and wellness and in this passion about chia seed that you were exploring. Was there anything in from finance that you took away that, that from your experience working in the public markets that helped you as an entrepreneur? Yeah, so it's a, it's a really good question. So what I would say is that, you know, as, as an investor in the public markets, you know, you're taught to, you know, typically try to be patient. You want to look for the best opportunities out there. You don't want to chase, you know, momentum and fads. And so this is something where, you know, I was seeing a lot of opportunities. I always was thinking about entrepreneurism and always loved to sort of think about tinkering with business ideas. But when I saw this opportunity and that fat pitch was sort of in front of me and everything seemed to align with my experience, with my skill set, with the timing, with my partners, it, uh, it made a lot of uh, sense. And I felt the confidence to be able to take that risk because I felt like it was very calculated. And then the other thing that I would say is with respect to my decision of, of making the launch into entrepreneurship is that I kind of actually had one foot in the door of entrepreneurship, but also still was running another business. And so what I would say is I took my, my hedge fund lens and kind of hedged myself and that I still was sort of running my, my core business, which, you know, fortunately was able to fund the first few years of Health Warrior, but also get the upside of being, you know, a large owner of this business. And I would say that, you know, the mentality I had as a hedge fund investor of saying, always hedge your downside, don't lose money, don't lose anything, but capitalize and maximize your upside profit. I would say that that was applicable to how I decided to sort of jump into entrepreneurship, where I still had one foot in the door of a business that was very stable and lucrative relative to all the risks associated with uh, with a startup. Right. Wow. 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 So you're kind of like dipping in both worlds, so to speak, entrepreneurship, but but also still um, investing. Talk to me about like, so after, of course, Health Warrior, you, you have an amazing exit to Pepsi. Do you have the urge to start another company, either like take a, a majority position as an investor or you know, really was there from like the very, very, like similar to what, what happened as Health Warrior, you being a co-founder. Did you ever have like that urge um, to, to kind of do it again? Yes. Um, yes and no is, is, is the answer. Yes. And that I really just had an amazing experience, learned a ton. You learned so much that I felt like, you know, if I do it over again, the success rate and the probability of success increases by multiples because you just know the playbook. And then the playbook isn't the same every time, but it's really about an early stage uh, business building. It's mitigating or avoiding a lot of the early mistakes. Uh, and so, yeah, we made a lot of mistakes early on in Health Warrior. And I feel like if I were to go start another business, I really enjoyed that, that I certainly would be able to mitigate those mistakes. But, but at the same time, I spent the majority of my career as an investor, you know, 15 plus years or so 
as an investor. And I really enjoyed that. And I really wanted to maintain my focus on investing. And so I really just got to the point in my professional career where I realized that I could find the intersection of the experience I had as an investor with the experience I had as an entrepreneur, and then marry that with my passion for health and wellness. And then on top of that, marry that also with just a huge market opportunity that I was seeing in, in the food space in particular. And so I actually kind of in, in an effort to maximize all of that, I decided to leave the public markets. And I was going down the road of starting my own venture fund, focused specifically on investing in early stage, healthy and better for you and more sustainable consumer businesses. It was going to be predominantly focused on food, but also a little broader looking into you know, beauty products and this landscape as well. And that's when I was actually at a conference in preparation to go out and start officially fundraising. It was myself, um, you know, I was going to fund uh, the business as well as I had another anchor investor. It's going to go raise a you know, $25, $50 million fund and just be a first time fund when I reconnected with what are now my partners at Power Plant Ventures. And so uh, my partners, Mark Rampola, Kevin Boylan, and TK Pillen, uh, had already gotten Power Plant Ventures fund one off the ground. Mark, as I mentioned, was the founder of Zico Coconut Water. Kevin and TK are the co-founders of Veggie Grill, respectively. And prior to that, they all had very successful backgrounds in finance, operations, and tech. And then they all came together and I'll get into sort of a little about how Power Plant Ventures came together. But ultimately, they had just gotten Power Plant Ventures Fund One off the ground. We're investing out of that and beginning to think about laying the foundation for a second fund when they realized they wanted to bring on another partner, particularly someone with, with more of an institutional investing background because they were more, while Kevin came from finance, he was more on the banking side. TK and, and uh, Mark come from the operating side. And so they wanted someone with an institutional investing background, but also who knew the consumer food space and preferably someone that they knew. Because, you know, as you know, venture funds and, and private equity funds are, you know, these are long-term commitments. They're 10-year life cycle funds. And so, you know, this is, th these decisions don't come lightly. And long story short, I reconnected with Mark at this conference, told him what I was working on. He told me what he was working on. And the next morning I got a text. I remember waking up to a text from him at five in the morning saying, call me immediately. And uh, he said, look, you know, it didn't come to my mind when I, I caught up with you yesterday, but he kind of laid out sort of what he was working on after I, you know, in a little more detail and said, look, what I didn't mention was we were thinking of bringing on another partner and it, things, you know, things work out for a reason. And so pretty quickly, uh, I kind of began to sort of entertain the idea of joining the team as their fourth partner and it made a lot of sense for so many reasons. I respected, you know, the hell out of these guys. They built their own businesses in the past. They put together an amazing first fund. And, you know, for me to be able to walk into an existing operation, and I had, you know, coming from the, from the public markets, running a multi-billion dollar hedge fund, I had aspirations to build, you know, I came in and said, look, if I'm going to join, I want to build a firm, not just a fund. And, you know, at the time it was a 40, you know, our first fund was a smaller $42 million fund. And, you know, they said, that's exactly our mindset. And, you know, we'd love a partner to sort of, you know, work with, to, to partner with, to, to go and build that foundation to, to build into something bigger. So, you know, the stars were aligned. That was two and a half plus years ago, and it couldn't have worked out better. I couldn't be happier. It's as if we've all been operating and working together for years. Uh, and so that's how ultimately I then made the transition into investing in these better for you food businesses.
it's really interesting because you came from, of course, the hedge fund public market space. Then you, you know, co-founded a company and went through that entire process all the way to exit. And then you became a venture capital investor, just quite the, the career. And I've had folks that have come on the show that when they come from hedge funds, they usually go directly. They don't then co-found a company. They usually go directly to venture capital and come downstream. So just very different and really quite unique, um, especially for the show. And, and that's awesome. Talk to me a little bit about some of like the early mistakes that you did in Health Warrior. And if that at all, when you think about due diligence at Power Plant, if that influences you at all, like things that you might have not thought about in the early stages when you were starting Health Warrior, but now those are maybe questions that you now like ask entrepreneurs and are very, very adamant and direct, if that makes sense. I, I would say it depends at what stage, because we made mistakes across <laughs> the whole arc of our growth. Yeah, what, what I would say is number one, for real early, you know, this is just a funny anecdote, but you know, for real early companies, you can waste a lot of money on swag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, this is a, uh, what I would call a small mistake, but it's funny. We enlisted Kelly Flatley, who was the uh, co-founder of Bare Naked Snacks. I'm not sure if you recall that brand, but they, she was actually one of the first companies early on in the better for you food category to have a really nice exit with her, her granola brand. And she served as an advisor to us early on. And in the first year or so, you know, we were, we were doing a couple hundred thousand dollars of sales, if that. Yet we were printing t-shirts and hats and giving away to our friends, you know, thinking, you know, spending a hundred K on that. She's like, um, your swag budget is about 50% of your sales. And that's probably not the right, you know, line item for a company that's trying to, you know, so I, I joke about that, but it really, you know, it, it, it is, it's sort of just a sign of, you know, the early mistakes that you can make. Um, you know, I would say one of the biggest mistakes we, we, we made uh, at Health Warrior was a failed product launch. And so I'm particularly sensitive to companies that have something good going for them. And when they're thinking about saying, hey, let's leverage this momentum, let's launch this product, let's go into this new category, I am very suspect and really push the companies in terms of saying, is it the right time? Is it the right product? Do you have more runway with your existing product line before you become too diverse in your product set? So we launched a protein bar and I think even our research on the protein bar was, I think we just missed the mark, you know, we, and we were also a little egotistical, you know, there's a lot of research out there about how many grams of protein your body can actually consume. And there's a lot of bars out there with 30 grams of protein, which, you know, actually they say in one serving, your body can't even digest. So we came out with a protein bar that kind of missed the mark though, on the number of grams that consumers were looking for. And that was a big deal. You know, consumers kept saying, well, I can get 20 in a quest bar or 30 in this bar, why am I only getting 12 or 15 in your bar? And it turned out to be a major problem um, for us, you know? And so I think that was something that we probably didn't do enough homework in terms of thinking about what was driving the consumers to all these other successful bar brands, particularly with a focus on protein. So, you know, I would say that that was really one of the bigger learning lessons that, that I had. And, and then the other is, is on team and not to single anyone out, but yeah, we had a few people on the team that I think there is no room for an, an even an A minus player, particularly in the early phase of growth. And sometimes when we saw weaknesses in someone, it doesn't mean that they weren't skilled, but maybe they just weren't the right fit for our stage or for our brand 
or for our category within the food and beverage space, you know, you, you got to sometimes cut your losses sooner than later because it can really hamper you. And as I said, there, there's no one in mind that I want to single out necessarily or that I even I'm, I'm pointing to, but it's something that we spend a lot of time when we're doing diligence on brands to make sure that they have the right team on the bus. And even great resumes that have great references, they come from great companies, just they might not be the right fit for your culture, for your brand. Maybe they're transitioning from you know, food into beverage and there's still some nuances there. And so that team is, a, is just another area where you know, we at Power Plant and I could say you know, my partners, Mark and, and Kevin and TK, they, they knew this as well. And so we're maniacal about how we, you know, what we look for and how we underwrite you know, teams. No, that that makes a lot of sense. But that's actually something too that we that, that we've discussed on the show. Like a, a previous guest was saying, you know, on the tech side, just because you came from Facebook and Google doesn't mean that you actually might be fit out to start a company because mm-hmm. you're used to these massive budgets, right? And you're used to this um, where you really have to get cr- very creative uh, at the early stages. Yeah. No. Look, we have we have companies, you know, that yes, we're exactly that. Just because someone came from like a big firm. They were the CMO, for example, at a $250 million sales company doesn't mean they're going to be a great CMO for a $20 million sales company at all. So we're, we're, we're very conscious of that. They might be, but we have to really test them to really understand who they are, what their goals are. Were they doing the work or they have a whole team that was doing the work? Because if they're coming into a growth stage, they're not going to have an entire team to sort of delegate business to. And we've seen that in some of our portfolio companies. One of our portfolio companies, you know, hired a head of growth, you know, online, online growth came from a really big company and they realized pretty quickly that this, you know, individual was, was used to just delegating and not really involved in the day to day and really understanding, you know, the the intricacies of each marketing channel online. And and that became a problem and pretty quickly they realized it and they said, this person's not the right fit. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, 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 I could totally see that. I know that you said that you're very sensitive about product launches and really thinks want to be, it seems like involved or want to really think through in terms of product launches. Living in these really weird times with COVID, how are you thinking about product launches right now? Well, it's really hard to launch a brand right now in particular. So first off, our fund, we consider ourselves more of, I guess, in the growth equity stage of investing. So we're typically looking for businesses generating revenues north of $5 million. And I'd even say, you know, our last three companies all have sales north of 15 million. So we're, we're trying to de-risk some of the investment in terms of making sure that there's, there's a real underlying business already where we can underwrite those velocities, we can underwrite the brand, we can underwrite the product market fit. And what I would say is for a new company right now, it's really challenging. You know, it's challenging for two reasons. It was challenging before COVID because this has been a category that's attracted a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of investors. You're seeing both converge right now where dollars are competing for, for opportunities because there have been some really big wins. And frankly, it's probably been an underserved category. I think you identified that as you started your podcast, like, you know, the consumer VC, there weren't that many that existed. Look back five, 10 years ago. And now you're seeing a lot of funds focused on that. So we're seeing competition from investors, which then enable a lot of the entrepreneurs to also go and start these businesses. The entrepreneurs are seeing the capital, they're seeing the opportunity, they're seeing the beyond meets of the world break out and win. 
So we're seeing a lot of companies out there. So, and prior to that as, as well, you know, it's also some of the industry is a bit low barrier to, to market, unless you're a really highly tech innovative like company like a Beyond Meat or Thrive Market, which, you know, was it the, one of the first, you know, material online grocers. At the end of the day, building a chip company, you're, you're, you're one of 20, 30 brands out there it's not easy to sort of thread that needle. And so what I would say is it's, it's challenging regardless of COVID. And then in a COVID environment, you know, I think things will eventually, I'm more of an optimist when it comes to COVID. And I think we're going to go back to, you know, this will all, you know, look at what's going on around, you know, obviously this podcast is taking place in July of, of, you know, still peak COVID, so to speak. And, you know, you look around the world right now and there are countries, you know, going about their lives as if it were normal, you know, much of Europe and Asia are restaurants are open, businesses are open. So I'm pretty confident that the U.S. will, will figure this out. So I think eventually we'll get back, but right, you know, back to norm. But right now it's tough because grocers, you know, particularly, you know, in the brick and mortar space, you know, they're just more focused on working with existing brands and selling essential items. So I would say it's, you know, it's, it's a tough time to build a business. But then again, there have been other brands out there who have built businesses amid, you know, global recessions beyond meat launched in 2008. So then they did pretty well. Crisis creates opportunity, and so this could also be an epic time to build a business when there's dislocation, uh, and particularly a lot of those businesses online. You know, you know, people are shopping online more. You know, when we made our investment in Thrive Market online in 2015, so we were the first institutional check into Thrive, and at the time, online sales of grocery sales as a percent of totals of total grocery sales was two percent. Last year, it was only 3%. Fast forward to March, it was north of 30%. I'm not necessarily saying you can straight line 30% in perpetuity, but this certainly, we're at a whole new bar in terms of people shopping online for, for food. And so that's a trend that's not going anywhere. And I think businesses that are being built or have been built in the last two years as direct to consumer, that's not going anywhere. I feel really confident that you can still build a really robust business there. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, it's funny as a podcast host, when I talk to companies, I never know the effects of COVID. It could go, it's a really like a 180. It could be if they're very exposed on on the retail side, then they'll tell me how, yeah, like the DTC channel has, you know, done well for us, but it hasn't offset what we've missed out in retail. But the companies, so they're having a much harder time. But the companies that are that haven't yet gone into retail, they're flying high and, and life's great. So it's just I never actually know what right when I'm going to call what to expect, to be honest. It, it's a real mix. And I would say, you know, even in our own portfolio, we certainly we certainly have our challenges and you can't hide from that. You know, there's been a lot of businesses negatively impacted. We're investors in Veggie Grill, which is, you know, uh, it's a fast casual restaurant chain, all plant-based focused food with 37 locations up and down the West Coast. Just launched last year in December, uh, a new flagship location in New York. They've got locations in Boston. You know, they had to close at, you know, during sort of peak COVID, they closed 11 of the restaurants. You know, it's been a real challenge. They've struggled, but every week, same store sales have gotten better and better and better. And so we're seeing the light at the end of the day. And fortunately, this was, you know, with 37 locations, they had material revenues. You know, they were running all of their restaurants on a four-wall basis, were profitable. They weren't just growing for the sake of growing. So they ran a very disciplined business, which is serving them very well right now, uh, that they had some cash on the balance sheet. They're able to get through this and, and they'll survive. But it's, but it's certainly been a challenge. But then, you know, on the opposite side of the spectrum, we're investors in, have you, have you met the team from Vive Organic yet? 
don't know if you know Wyatt. He's in LA. Um, but Vibe Organic, they sell these two ounce wellness shots. And uh, their number one best selling SKU pre COVID and obviously during COVID was called an immunity boost. And it was, you know, it had efficacious doses of ginger and turmeric and cayenne in it. And, you know, their sales are through the roof. I mean, they're, 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 but their 2020 is going to come in. They reforecasted 2x from their original budget, which was already a very aggressive budget, you know, forecasting something like 3x growth from the prior year. So right place, right time. But look, you know, they were building the, the, the at the end of the day, the tailwind, though, that we still operate on and, and invest along is that businesses focused on better for you products. It's going to, it's a trend that's not going anywhere. And so, you know, again, COVID is, you know, for the most part accelerated that trend, but again, then it depends on your channel and, you know, where you're sold in a store and, and what, what, what exact products you have, how discretionary it is, where that'll ultimately determine the outcome and, and impact of COVID. And just taking on COVID for, for just one more question. I, I know you mentioned how, you know, you of course are really obsessive about team and making sure that's the right team for uh, the company. And you do, you know, a lot of due diligence on the team, but you know, now you're, you're having to meet teams remotely via zoom. Has it been hard to find conviction within teams and within founders since you can't meet them in person? Yeah. What I'd say is we've been fortunate so far in that, you know, given Given you know our tenure in the in the industry, given the time frame we've been managing this fund, given the stage where we invest, we have not we have there's one company right now that we're underwriting where we have not met the founders in person. Prior to that, we've underwritten two deals recently, and we're fortunate that we've known the founders for several years. And so we haven't really run into the challenge yet, other than this first company. And what I would say is how we're responding is you know we're doing a lot more Zoom calls. The founder came through a reference of one of our portfolio company CEOs. So right there, there was a great reference check because he doesn't take you know, introductions lightly and said, this is one of the most impressive entrepreneurs that I've found. We've done so far seven reference and background checks. Normally we'll do three or four, but right now we're up to seven and uh, continue, continuing to do more. And we just hosted a whole bunch of Zoom meetings right now. So yes, it's more challenging. But again, there's so much, you know, first or second degree of separation. The person who this um, CEO, this founder brought in as the COO, she has multiple touch points with, with some of our first, you know, some of our very close connections, work directly at a company that, you know, we have good connections at. So we ha it hasn't been as challenging as I would have thought, but I, I certainly don't want this to sustain. You know, it's nice to be able to sit down and look the person in the eyes and really get to know someone, you know, as an athlete myself, I always try to get in like a workout with, with, uh, with a founder. I, for, for a bunch of my interviews, you know, in the past, I've gone for runs and, you know, just to really just test people to see who they are and really get to know them more than a, Zoom meeting. So I hope I hope we go back to a more normalized world, but we're we're making do with what we have now. I think you're the first person that actually said that they do workouts with founders, which I think is awesome. That's really cool. You can point. I know that you invest in a, in quite a variety of businesses. I know we talked about them: restaurants, B two B catering, food and beverage products. How are you thinking about portfolio construction and making sure you have the right balance? Yeah. So our first fund was managed much more like a more traditional venture fund. We made seventeen investments. 
our focus was predominantly on investing in series A consumer facing food, beverage, food service companies. But we also did invest in some seed stage and some growth rounds. And we also invested kind of up and down the, the, the supply chain. We invested in some ingredients companies, as you noted. We invested in a vertical farming company, an indoor hydroponic farming company, Square Roots. We invested in a company called Nutriati on the ingredient side, which is manufacturing protein and flowers from chickpeas. You know, really innovative technology that they have. Our second fund, as we raised, um, as we've kind of matured and, and grown and raised a, a larger fund, really what we were finding is our sweet spot was investing in this emerging growth stage where companies have revenues of, of five to, you know, up to $30 million in revenue. And what we also realized is that our sweet spot was consumer facing. And so out of our second fund with respect to portfolio composition, we are more narrowly focused on consumer-facing businesses, and we, you know, most of our investments are focused on consumer food and beverage. Food service is also an area where we find interesting, but not as much in traditional food service with respect to restaurants, but that's where we're looking for some more innovative you know, tech companies. We made an investment in a company called Thistle, which does direct, uh, it's a subscription-based meal delivery company, all, all healthy plant-based meals delivered to your door. They built a phenomenal business. We see huge growth potential for that. So our investment on the restaurant side is, you know, our bar is very high. They're very tough businesses. They're very low margin businesses. They're very capital intensive businesses. And so for a fund of our size, you know, while we can back a company, we know that in order for them to be a truly breakout brand, they're going to go on to raise, you know, 20, 50, $100 million type rounds. And at that point, we start losing control. We start getting you know, diluted. So we just have to think about sort of you know, the capital intensity of the business that we're investing in to make sure that we can maintain our ownership stake in the companies. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. You know, in the food and beverage space, when I was talking to a couple of other investors that for them, they started off in the growth equity stage and then they came downstream more towards venture capital. And the reason why was because what they were noticing is that you don't really have a lot of outcomes in the billions. It's much more in like the 100 million to, you know, 300 million range per se. And so they were very focused on profitability and making sure you're not actually also, they, they saw a lot of case studies about companies over fundraising. I was just curious about how you think about growth, profitability, um, and, and as well over fundraising for, uh, uh, for companies when you're considering them. Yeah. Well, well what I would say is, you know, it's so, somewhat contrary to what, you know, maybe this, your other guest shared is that the real early stage companies in food is we're, we're seeing just become very crowded and we're actually seeing valuation inflation there that is making it almost prohibitively, you know, it, it's becoming prohibitive for us to make investments in some of these deals. We, we see very attractive entrepreneurs businesses, but then you get, you know, some investors, whether they're smaller, you know, smaller funds, whether they're super angels, whether they're impact investors or tech investors, and they see a big idea and a big concept and they just want to overfund them. And they throw a lot of money at businesses when frankly, we always tell the founders like, Hey, don't dilute yourself so much, go raise a smaller round, build this methodically. Um, you know, we're, we're not afraid to make a bet when we see a big opportunity and see something really innovative. So I don't want to say we're always so conservative, but I would just say that there, yes, I agree. There's a lot of companies overcapitalized, but I would actually say 
particularly in the real early stage. And so we find a real sweet spot exactly where sort of, you know, we get into a business where it's generating five to 30 and we get it onto a run rate of 50, 100 or so, exactly what you're talking about. There's a lot of exit opportunities to generate some really nice returns exiting at 100 to $300 million. And we could build a really nice business out of that. And that's kind of where we've chosen to play. And that said, though, I think what's really interesting is that, you know, Oatly, you know, which just raised a $200 million round led by Blackstone. There's a brand called Perfect Day, which just raised a $90 million round at like a $300 million valuation. Califia Farms just raised a round at a billion plus, almost $2 billion valuation. Portfolio company Appeal Sciences, which is one of our fund one company, just raised a valuation at north of a billion. We're beginning to see some real unicorns in, in, in the food space right now. And so you do have that opportunity, even if you are getting in where a company is generating $20 million of sales, you, know, you can still have that outsized return of Beyond Meat, which is a multi-billion dollar market cap now. Thrive Market, which I mentioned earlier, you know, it's, it's still private, but it's a billion dollar brand. You know, I can tell you that M- multiple billions probably in, in the public markets or in a private market transaction right now. So we're seeing some, you know, still getting that those outsized returns. And then where we're investing, we think we're at least de-risking the, you know, and de-risking sort of the, the chance of a zero. Whereas, you know, that company with zero or $1 million of sales, it very well could just fail and fall flat, flat on its face. Where And that's where I, we think we're in a real sweet spot of that emerging growth category. I know you have um, a ton of experience um, over your career as a board member. What makes a good board member? What I'd say is it first depends on the stage of company. So I think you know that's something to just always be mindful of, of where the company is on their growth trajectory. But what I would say is regardless of stage, a good board member is listen. They ask founders hard questions. And I think they also, in an effort of asking hard questions, they help the founders ultimately see the forest through the trees. And, you know, what I can say is, you know, when, when you're operating a business, you're triaging all the time. And it's really hard to step back and really see where the business is going, what the opportunities are. And so as much as I always like to press the founders on the details, I always want to step back and say, hey, what's your vision? Where do you want to take this company? Where do you see this brand in three years? Because you need to start setting those that foundation for that. Because without that, you're lost. And so I think that's really, those are three areas where I tried to focus on and we at PowerPlant really tried to focus on as being good board members. And, and something we always tell our founders is we try to meet you where you are. And that was kind of going back to sort of in some respects, you know, what does it take to be a good investor or a good board member is every company is at a different stage. Every founder needs certain different things. And so we always try to sit down even before we make the investment of saying, let's really talk about what you want out of this relationship. How can we help? What are your goals? And then we can work together and really, you know, serve as a better board member. I love that. What are some trends in food right now and, and beverage or the better for you ca- categories that you're particularly excited on? Well, you know, as you know, our focus at Power Plant is, is plant-based nutrition and food. So I would say first and foremost, we just think, you know, pl- the plant-based movement is in the early innings where all stakeholders are, be- are beginning to buy in. I noted we're seeing the investors and capital come into the space. 
we're seeing entrepreneurs, we're seeing strategics, and we're also even beginning to see governments, you know, begin to, to take initiatives to sort of move this forward. But within that, I would say there are two different sort of categories that I'll just note on for purposes of right now. One is the whole concept is food is medicine. I think we're going to see a very interesting intersection of food and healthcare. We've seen some very early stage companies where they're going down the path of trying to find that intersection. The other area of interest for us continues to be on the alternative protein side. You know, we made an investment in uh, Beyond Meat, which you know turned out to be a very successful. We made an investment in Ripple, uh, which is a dairy alternative uh, company, and you know, in the milk space. And we've also recently made an investment in a company called the Collaborative, which is the number one and two player in the UK for plant-based yogurts. But other areas that we're particularly interested in are alternative cheese, pet food, and eggs. Those are three categories. And then the fourth I would add is seafood. We think that's another um, interesting frontier uh, that is moving into plant-based and cell-based as well. Uh, given sort of you know, how unsustainable our fisheries are, we certainly think there's a big opportunity for that as well. So those are some categories right now that we think are, there's you know, big you know, blue ocean opportunities We've met with every single founder and company out there, and we're just you know looking who to who to where and who to place our bets on, regionally or or, or country wise. Just like around, just looking at it from a global perspective, what are some countries that you or if your your main focus is the United States, that's that, that's great as well. But just thinking about uh, from a global perspective, because you touched on the UK, are there any particular countries that you're excited about that maybe all going through this plant movement and you're seeing these changes in consumer behavior? Yeah, well, we, we focus predominantly on the U.S., but I certainly pay a trench, attention to trends around the globe. And what I would say is Europe's actually ahead of the U.S. in terms of this plant-based movement. People, a lot more people uh, have adopted plant-based you know, diets and alternatives in, into their diet. So that's definitely one area that we've already begun to see some, some great traction. But most of our investments are focused on, on the U.S. This, this company that I mentioned, the Collaborative, which is the number one and two player in, in the UK and Europe. Uh, the reason we did invest in them is because they brought on a world-class CEO to run the business in the US to build out their US presence. We saw a huge market opportunity in the plant-based yogurt category. The yo global yogurt market's a $9 billion category. Only 600 million of that is in non-dairy and plant-based. And of that, only 225 million in sales in the US. So, Huge opportunity when you look at sort of the penetration of plant-based yogurt relative to traditional dairy, and then look at uh, as a comparison relative to what uh, non-dairy milk has done, going from you know roughly single-digit percentages to nearly 13 to 15 percent. So we think that's a huge category, and that was one of the, you know one of the underlying thesis of our investment in the collaborative, which we which was our most recent investment. Um, but you're seeing uh, the traditional yogurt market declining, declining actually, on average about 2% over the last three years. Yet the non-dairy yogurt market is growing on a CAGR north of like 25%. I think it was actually at 50% or so. So we're seeing huge exponential growth. And so that was a bet that we were, you know, were looking to make. And again, we sort of took eye of what was happening in Europe with you know, the growth of plant-based yogurt. And that helped us get confidence in our investment in this company to bring this product to the U.S. That's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah, I never, I actually never really crossed my mind in terms of a plant-based yogurt. I'll, I'll sort of have to try one. I'm a huge yogurt fan. So, we'll so make sure we send awesome. you some. Oh, cool. Thanks. Um, so what's what's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? Yeah, I, I might sound like I'm suffering from hubris by saying this, but I would say I, I would like to see more investment discipline with respect to underwriting. 
I'd love to see, you know, the venture capitalists uh, look at businesses more as investments as opposed to ideas. You know, so it's probably a little contrary to the whole concept of venture capital. But I just think, you know, I just look at so many valuations and I just think they're so out of whack that I have a tough time stomaching legitimately underwriting how you're going to make money when you price, you know, a pre-revenue company at $150 million, uh, you know, pre-money valuation. It just becomes so binary and, and I'm not so sure it needs to. You know, a lot of these companies, they're building war chests for three years you know, look, coming from the public markets, I'm, I'm a little jaded. And so I, I know I have to sort of balance sort of looking at business, more mature businesses from early stage. But I just think there's a lot of money out there that's just tossing money at ideas and, and big, bold ideas. And uh, I, I just don't think it has to be that way. I think, you know, you could see a lot more discipline with respect to underwriting and, and valuation. And, and also, I will say, because it's, it's very front and center and something that we're talking a lot now, a lot more about at uh, within Power Plant, and we've always been very conscious of it and actually think we have a very diverse team relative to a lot of other firms. But, you know, diversity inclusion is, is certainly something that as a, you know, the venture community, I think everyone knows it, it needs to be worked on. And, you know, while, while at Power Plant, we've taken great strides in, in an effort to diversify our team, I know we can do better as well. And we're taking some real measurements to, in an effort to do that. No, that's great to hear. That's great to hear. Want to know just on the diversity piece, do you accept or do you like, cold cold email outreach for for companies that are raising are do you look at any of those companies at all or do you or does everything mostly have to come through a warm intro because it's been kind of a hotly contested thing in the venture world it's been it, it, for us it's both we, we get a ton of inbound interest and then proactively we're reaching out to companies great no no no, no, no that's great that's great because like i've had on some uh some previous guests that they're like oh no you have to have like a warm introduction to get to me and I feel like if you need a warm introduction, then you're not really actually diversifying your network. Look, it's really nice to have um, a reference and warm introduction, but by no means are we so exclusive that you can't get into our team if you don't know us or know someone else. I think that's I think that's a little myopic, frankly. So, so what's what's one company that you had the opportunity to invest in didn't, and in retrospect, wish you did? So far, there hasn't been anything at Power Plant that uh, we've we've. We've avoided, but personally, as someone, as I mentioned, who's who's somewhat of an extreme athlete and early on on the spinning scene in New York City as I was training for some triathlons, I, I should have been all over Peloton and invested in, in Peloton, which, you know, knew, knew some early investors and never had an opportunity to, uh, to, to capitalize on that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Got it. What's one piece of advice you have for founders? The one thing I've realized is being a founder myself, as well as an investor, is that founders come in all forms, shapes, and sizes. Ultimately, there is really, you know, we were at Power Plant, we have spent a lot of time trying to identify what a good team looks like, what a good founder CEO is. And we were trying to almost like pigeonhole, you know, come up with like a job description, theoretically. And what we realized is that there's many different types of founders. And it comes down to We've identified and we've been spending a lot more time studying archetypes where we're really trying to characterize, you know, the, what the human drive and motivation is. And once you can really nail that down, you can understand what motivates that, that founder, what makes that founder, where, where their strengths are and where their weaknesses are. Um, so I think there's a lot of different, you know, skills that founders will have. But at the end of the day, I always come back to grit. 
which you know I ultimately describe as you know it's a word that is being commonly used, but I, it's something that I've always embraced. Uh, it's really talking about the power of passion and perseverance, and and I really believe that you know I I, I read Angela Duckworth's book Grit, which talks all about and you know created that equation: talent plus effort equals skill, skill plus effort equals achievement. And at the end of the day, without that grit, I just think that it, you're, it, it's going to be insurmountable to build a company. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Good question. So yeah, so one book that inspired me personally is a book called The Choice by Edith Ava Egger. And it's a remarkable story about resilience and courage of a Holocaust survivor. And it's not just your average Holocaust survivor story. It's a beautifully written book, book with the, the main message that I took away is embrace the possible. And I think the most powerful quote that really stuck with me was that the, the, the author who, who was actually still living, she has actually became a psychologist. She lives down in Southern California. I've actually reached out to her in an effort to meet her because I was so moved by this book. But um, her and her whole family were, were shipped off on a train to Auschwitz. And her and her mom were separated. And literally in the line, they separated the girl from the mom. The mom walked straight into one of the gas chambers. And her last, the quote as, as the author tells the story was saying, just remember, no one can take away from you what you've put in your mind. And man, that's powerful. Uh, it's something that it really just shows you that it's, it's all up in our mind of how we react and respond to things in life. And uh, so I've, I've just always carried that, you know, within me. I really always, always believe that, you know, it's the power within and you can control your mindset. Love it. Love it. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yes. I appreciate having me uh, on the show. Keep up the great work. As I said, I've become a huge fan. I've been listening on all my, uh, on all my runs and bike rides. So keep, keep it up. It's great work. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Dan. I would say follow him on Twitter, but he hasn't tweeted since 2018. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.